<laughs> All right, well, uh, go ahead and, and make your way back to your seat. Good morning. It's great to see you today. Hope that you're doing well. Hope that your week was blessed. And uh, for those of you who are new, we welcome you today. We want to let you know we are a church on a Love Works mission together, which means that we're seeking out opportunities to love our neighbors and coworkers and those around us with the love of Christ. The Bible says we love because what? He first loved us, and so that's our motto around here, and uh, we are so glad that you're with us today. If you have a copy of the Bible with you, go to Matthew chapter 6, and as you do that, I want to pray for us. So Lord, we thank you once again that we can come together and learn together, and as we look at your prayer, the Lord's prayer that you gave your disciples, I pray that you would open our eyes to its richness today, and Lord, as the disciples at one time asked you, teach us to pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I imagine that uh, most of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And I'm curious, how many of you um, memorized this prayer as a child? Can I see your hands? Wow. Many, many, many of you. How many of you heard this prayer like growing up in church? It was recited or prayed publicly. Could I see your hands? All right, many, many, many of us. Well, the Lord's Prayer may very well be the most famous prayer of all time. It's known and loved by millions of people, maybe billions of people. But you know what? Not as many people are aware of the context in which Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer. He actually gave it as an antidote to another kind of praying that he found quite disgusting. And if you were here last weekend, you hopefully recall what I'm talking about. In this series, we're walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount together, and we've learned that in that sermon, Jesus was exposing and attacking what I'm calling performance-based religion, right? That's the kind of religion where people do a lot of pretending, doing spiritual stuff in the presence of others to get people to notice them and view them as very super spiritual people, so they'll feel good about themselves, And we saw that Jesus viewed this kind of thing as nothing but a big production, a big performance, a big show. Do you remember his warning in verse 1 of chapter 6 that we looked at last week where he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Do you remember that? And we saw that Jesus is talking about this theatrical religion. Spiritual activities done as a performance, uh, on stage, as it were, play acting to be seen and praised by other people. Now, in our small group this past week, our leader, Jeff, pointed out something very interesting. And uh, by the way, I want to concur with Pastor Brian. This is a great time to jump into a small group. And if you're not in one, I I hope that you'll get in one soon. But Jeff took us back to chapter 5 of Matthew, where earlier, in the same sermon, Jesus had said this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it's like, well, Jesus, which is it? Do you want us to do our deeds in order to be seen by people or to do them in private? Is Jesus schizophrenic? What do you think? Now, Jeff wisely showed us that the issue here is heart motivation, right? In fact, that's his whole point in this sermon. In chapter 5, verse 14, he said to let other people see our good deeds so that what? They will do what? Give glory to 
our Father who's in heaven. You see the motivation there? I want people to see my good deeds so they will be amazed by the God who lives in me, whose light lives in me, and is shining out through my life. That's my motivation. Then in chapter 6, Jesus attacks a self-centered motive. Oh, I'm going to do good deeds so that people will see me and be impressed by me and give glory to me. So it goes to our motives, to what we hope will happen as a result of our good deeds. So there's no contradiction here. As one commentator, A.B. Bruce, put it, we are to shine, we're to shine when we're tempted to hide, and we are to hide when we're tempted to shine. And I think that's saying it quite well. All right, well, we noted that Jesus, what he's doing here is applying this principle of a pure-hearted, righteous lifestyle to three activities, right? Giving, praying, and fasting. And last week, we looked at what he said about giving. Today, we're going to look at praying, and that's timely because as a church, we're getting ready to enter into a season of what I hope will be intensified prayer, where we're going to be seeking the Lord together for the increased impact of the gospel in our own hearts and lives, in our families, in our workplaces, neighborhoods, our community, adjacent communities, our nation, and for the world. And so let's be guided by what Jesus is teaching us here about prayer. As I said, this is the section where Jesus teaches his followers to pray what's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. And what he did is he offered it as a sharp contrast to a very popular kind of praying in that day, and I'll call it performance-based praying. And it came in two forms. So exhibit A of this performance-based praying, and by the way, you can take the study guide out of your worship folder if you haven't done that yet. You can follow along with us. Exhibit A is praying to impress people. So verse 5, Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the, what? Hypocrites. Remember that word? That's the mask wearers, the pretenders. Don't be like them. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he's talking about praying in order to be seen by others, which is what some of those folks were doing, trying to impress people with their spirituality. Now, a question I had is, does Jesus here mean to teach that no one should ever pray in public? I hope not, because I've offered hundreds of prayers in public, and many of you have prayed in public before in the presence of others. When we look in the Bible, we find there are other places in the scriptures where Christians did pray in public, and God commended them. So this is not a, like a, a blanket prohibition against public prayer. But what did Jesus mean? And just to be true of the context, what we need to see is it again goes to motive, right? To why we're praying. If you pray in the presence of other people because you want them to be impressed with you, impressed with how spiritual you are, then Jesus it would be say, is saying it would be better for you if you went home, went into your room, closed the door, and prayed in secret to the Father who is in heaven. He would say, you need to learn what prayer is really all about. It's not a tool 
to get from others what you want, respect, honor, admiration. No, it's a means of communing with God. Now, I got to thinking about this, and I actually think that some Christians should learn to pray in public because their reluctance to do so is motivated by the very same desire to impress other people. So these people decline to pray around other people because they don't want other people to be unimpressed by their prayers and think less of them. But that's the same motivation, right? It's the same thing. So both praying and not praying can both arise from the same motives. By the way, I do think that the small group setting is a great place to learn how to pray sincerely to God in the presence of a few other people who hopefully aren't there to judge or rate or rank your prayers, right? I hope that doesn't happen. You like to hold up a card, you know, (laughs) 7.5. Please tell me that that's not happening anywhere. (laughs) So anyway, bad praying, exhibit A, is praying to be noticed, praying to impress people. Exhibit B is related to that, and that's praying in order to try and impress God. Verse 7. And when you pray, he said, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, wordy prayers. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus is teaching here, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the Gentiles, the pagans. One is pretentious prayer, and now this is pagan prayer. Pretentious prayer seeks to impress people. Pagan prayers seek to impress God and rouse him to action to get him to do something for you. When you think about it, both of those ways of praying betray a wrong, distorted concept of God, right? And that's really what's in view here. The truth is that the way that we pray reveals what we think about God. So I would ask, is God an angry, cranky, lazy deity who must be appeased and cajoled and roused out of his slumber with long, wordy prayers in order to get him to do something? Is that what God's like? When I think about that, I think about the story from the Old Testament of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel trying to get their God to rain down fire on the sacrifice. Do you remember that? Do you remember what they were doing? What were they doing? They were crying out, they were cutting themselves, trying to draw blood to get their deity to pay attention to them, and they were repeating the same formula prayers over and over and over and over again, trying to rouse their God to do something for them, to show up and show how strong he was. Is the true God like that, or is God a gracious father who loves his children, he's active in their lives? knows what they really need, and desires to give them all that he is to satisfy the deepest longings of their souls. You know what I really believe is you and I grow deeper in the gospel together and know God better, our prayers are going to change. It's going to change how we pray. In one sense, true prayer is simply aligning our hearts with who God really is and then responding to him. So Jesus tells his listeners how not to pray. And then he lays out a pattern for how to pray. And we call it the Lord's Prayer, right? And for the purposes of this sermon, I'm going to use the King James Version of 
the Lord's Prayer because that's how so many people learned it. And so in verse 9, he said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. In other words, here's a pattern for praying. And it's familiar to us, isn't it? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that's a prayer, isn't it? That's a big time, God-focused prayer from the lips of Jesus. It's beautiful. I think we need to dig deeper and explore this some because it's, it's a treasure trove of spiritual riches. Let's look first just at how it's structured, how this prayer is put together by Jesus. And we can see at first glance that it contains six distinct requests or petitions. Do you see them? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So six petitions, six requests. Father, cause your name to be hallowed, which means revered, highly honored, respected, highly esteemed. Cause your kingdom to come. And speaking of his kingdom, it's talking about his reign and his rule in the hearts of people. May may your kingdom come. May it be extended and broadened and deepened in people's hearts. And cause your holy will to be done, your will done, your desires fulfilled, your plans accomplished, your wishes carried out down here on the earth like they are up in heaven. It's really a prayer for a little bit of heaven on earth. And then, give us food. Give us forgiveness. Help us in our fight against sin and against Satan. So six distinct requests. But do you see a division in those six. Sure you do. We all feel the shift in focus, don't we, from God's purposes to our needs. Do you see that? From the grand and glorious to the ordinary and the familiar. So six petitions, but naturally, and I believe intentionally, divided into two groups of three. Your name, your kingdom, your will, our food, our forgiveness our fight against sin. You see that? Two groups of three. And I think that indicates that Jesus understood what our lives would be like. He knew that we live our lives kind of flowing in and out of two different realms. The awesome, we spend a few moments there, and then the average, right? But both are important. So one moment we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon just blown away by the beauty of what lies before us. And the next minute, we're picking French fries out from between the seats of our rental car. So there's the lofty parts of life that are glorious and wonderful, and then there's the lowly parts. And we kind of move in between those two realms, those two spheres, don't we? There's the majestic and the mundane. There's praying for our missions team in Uganda one moment, And then changing baby's diapers at 2 a.m. Both. And I think Jesus wanted us to know that God is concerned with both of these realms in which we live. 
his grand purposes for the universe and the provision of our daily needs. That's what God's like. He's concerned with all the dimensions of our lives. So these two groups of petitions reflect these two realms of human existence. But then I think there's another division even, and I needed some help to see this one. There's actually one of these requests that's actually the goal and purpose of the other five. Do you see it? It's the first one. Hallowed be thy name. Doesn't that one kind of stand alone? And the reason it does is because there's nothing beyond that. Like, you, you can't pray, Lord, hallowed be your name in order that. There is no in order that. That's the end game. That's what Christians call worship. And that's the goal of the universe. And really, when you look at this, you could see all the other five requests supporting that one. That God's name be honored and esteemed and highly regarded. So six petitions, naturally breaking down into two groups of three, but then also a division of one and five. That first one being the aim or the goal or the purpose of all the others. So that's how the prayer is structured. But you know what? There's so much more in there than just how it's structured. There's the, the meat. There's the, there's the content. There's what it says. And just remember, Jesus is giving his listeners a pattern for genuine praying, right? It's not performance-based, not hypocritical, it's not for show. It's not aimed at manipulating God to try to get him to do something for us. I see it as the prayer of people who are saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A genuine, gospel-based, grace-driven prayer. You say, how so? What do you mean? Well, let me kind of unpack that bit further. I see some features of this prayer, some aspects of it that reveal this. First, how does Jesus begin the prayer? How's it start? Two words. Our Father, right? Right off the bat, Jesus is saying that genuine praying arises from having a relationship with God. So we could say it's, it's grounded in a family relationship. And that changes how God views you and how you view God. You know what? I have three boys in my family. I don't view my sons in the exact same way I view the neighbor's kids. And they don't view their dad in the exact same way that they view other dads in the neighborhood or on, you know, of their sports teams or whatever. We're in a unique relationship because we're family. And what Jesus is saying is in this prayer is that we pray our Father those who know Christ, because we are in that unique relationship with him, with God. Now, to call God Father, maybe sounds familiar to us, but to his listeners, his Jewish listeners in that day, would have been very startling to them because they were accustomed to viewing God as creator, sustainer, deliverer, lawgiver, ruler, judge, but not as daddy. That would have been new to them. And so Jesus came to open up that dimension of God's nature. He, he is all those other things. But he came to reveal God as Father. A Father who's forming a family for himself, a forever family. And we who know the rest of our Bibles know that it's only through believing the gospel of Jesus that lost, sinful people can be adopted into the family of God and call him Father, right? It's only those who and trust their lives to Jesus. And so when I pray this, our Father, I 
often view myself as walking into an office, like a huge office, and it's ornately designed, it's got dark paneled walls, a massive mahogany desk, it's the office of the CEO of the universe, who happens to be my father. And I view myself as walking into that office and sitting down in the leather-bound chairs across the desk from my dad, who runs the universe, thankful to my older brother, Jesus, who secured for me the clearance I needed to be able to walk into that office any time of the day or night at great cost to himself. And I can sit there and converse with my dad, who runs the universe. Cool stuff, huh? Our father. Others of you picture it a little bit differently. Maybe you picture yourself crawling up into the lap of your heavenly papa who loves you and cares for you and would never abuse you. And you just enjoy being there. You just enjoy feeling his warm embrace and his strength and his care for you and his closeness. You see, the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about 